When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. of the Bird Shop Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, it's Shotgun Talk with Phil Borgeli. Thanks for tuning in to episode number Welcome to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Thank you for joining us, everybody. We're talking shotguns with Phil Vorgeli today, shotgun editor at Field and Stream and Ducks Unlimited. We'll get to our conversation with Phil shortly, but I just want to mention a few things before we get to that, including a discount code, a call for questions for an upcoming episode, and I'm going to be brief today. I have been on the man this week with COVID. What a drag. It has really thrown a wrench into my October plans. Everybody at home has not been feeling well. And needless to say, I have not been out in the woods much in the last week. So hopefully nearing the end of it, and I will be back out there soon. But for now, if you caught last week's episode, the guys from Bird Dog of the Day were on. They wanted me to mention a promo code that is now available through the end of the year, all the way through December 31st, 2023. Use the promo code BIRDSHOT. That's one word, all capital letters, B-I-R-D-S-H-O-T, Birdshot, that'll save you 15% off site-wide at birddogoftheday.com. So that includes the stickers we were talking about on the episode, also some of the drinkware that they have just released. In fact, Seth sent me one of the new tumblers with, of course, the English setter on it. I've been drinking green tea out of that all week because my coffee tastes terrible to me right now, thanks to COVID. So anyways, thanks for that, Seth. Appreciate it been enjoying my green tea out of my new bird dog of the day tumbler and you can too 
and you can save 15% off anything from birddogoftheday.com with promo code birdshot. All right, next up, I was going to interview this week one of our favorite grouse season guests, Fritz Heller. We were going to do that this week, but I chatted with Fritz yesterday, and we opted to delay that for a week, which has given me a chance to mention this here on the podcast. If you've got questions for Fritz Heller, we would love to have you send those in to nick at birdshotpodcast.com or send me a message on Instagram or any of the other ways you can get a hold of me. If you don't know who Fritz is, go check out one of our previous episodes. We've probably done three or four of them over the years. Fritz is an avid, avid grouse hunter. Along with his brother, we had his brother Rick on at least one time as well. They love to grouse hunt. They hunt with labs, flushing dogs, and they're very good at it. And I love talking to Fritz this time of year, thinking about cover and cover selection and bird reports and all that stuff that you've come to know and love if you've enjoyed those episodes as well. So any questions you got for Fritz related to grouse, grouse hunting, flushing dogs, bird dogs, you name it, please send those in over the next week to nick at birdshotpodcast.com. We'll be recording with Fritz and I will be publishing that episode in the near future while it is still prime time rough grouse hunting. All right, I think that's it. Before we move into our conversation with Phil today, I have no idea when I'm going to be hit with my next wave of lethargy. So I'm going to get on with this. But one quick note about the episode today with Phil from a technical perspective. I did have to use my backup recording. It's an option I have with the over-the-internet recording platform I use. Normally, it produces really, really good quality audio. This time, the audio is fine, but it is the backup cloud recording, so it's not quite the same as what I'm used to working with. And anyways, the only thing you'll notice is there's, there's a few times during the episode where you might hear Phil and I talking over each other, and I try to minimize that as much as I could, but it's there a few times. And that is simply due to the internet lag, back and forth stuff that you're probably all used to doing Zoom calls and that sort of thing. Normally, the recording platform that I use has a way around that with the recordings that I typically edit and publish here. But again, this is the backup recording. So anyways, just a heads up there. If you notice any of that and are wondering what the heck Nick was doing on this episode, that's why. But with that said, Phil and I had a great conversation. Phil is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to shotguns and shooting. He's the shotgun editor at Field and Stream, Ducks Unlimited. Been doing this stuff for a long time. We get into his background a bit, talk plenty of shotguns, and of course some bird hunting as well. So hopefully all of you are happy, healthy, and hunting. I will be joining you as soon as I possibly can. But for now, let's welcome into the conversation and on to the Birdshot Podcast, Phil Borgeli. that we are recording and our guest today is phil borgeli shotgun editor at field and stream did i get that right phil yes also ducks unlimited oh ducks unlimited as well excellent excellent yeah well welcome to the show phil Mm -hmm. it's uh, it's my pleasure to have you on you and i got to connect this summer at an up and gun company gun fitting event and we got a chance to actually shoot some clays and talk some that was the most most clay shooting i did all week so thanks for thanks for coming phil you gave me a break Oh, that was fun. I, <laughs> horse and hunt is a great place, and really, uh, it's fun to get a chance to shoot those guns. Yeah. So, before we get to, to business, how is the decoy untangling coming this morning, Phil? Slowly. <laughs> Slowly. Um, 
and again, it's just I don't even know why I'm doing it because it hasn't rained here all summer. So the chance that any of more than a fraction of these decoys will hit the water is pretty slim. I'll probably hunt along the Iowa River much later in the season for geese, but uh, I don't think the duck decoys are even going to get wet this year. Low water conditions there. Yeah, I had no water conditions here. It's really, we are in the in the fourth year of a drought here in eastern Iowa, and uh, it's pretty bad. Have you... I imagine ducks will, will just go somewhere else. Have you been getting any of any rain recently? We've, we've, I mean, we're not all that far apart, but we're not in the same spot. We've been getting a lot of rain the last couple of weeks. Anything for you? It sounds like no. No, I watch those on the weather every morning, and I see those clouds go to the north of us. <clears throat> okay. And uh, they don't know. No. It's the short answer is no. <laughs> well, what have you been up to? We're, we're chatting today on October 4th, and this episode will air a little bit later than that. But it's, uh, it's obviously a time of interest for you and myself and everybody listening to the show. What have you been up to? Have you been out in the uplands chasing birds or anything hunting related? What have you been, on, what have you been up to, Phil? Uh, not in the uplands. I have been dove hunting a lot. Mm. Uh, and that is, uh, has become one of my very favorite things to do. I, I come from a state where doves were a songbird until about 12 years ago. Oh, really? And uh, since then, I have been catching up. And <laughs> it's, September has become one of my favorite wing shooting months because of it. What does a, t- what does a typical dove hunt look like? Where It sounds like you can kind of get out and do it locally nearby. You've got, are you hunting private land, public land? you got some places to go. What does it look like? Uh, a little bit, very little bit of public land. I, I um, sometimes will hunt the public area on opening day. I, I learned a long time ago. That getting up early just, you know, is, is great until about five minutes before shooting time when everybody shows up. So now if I hunt the public areas, I'll go at like 10 o'clock and shoot until about three when the afternoon shift shows up and go home. And a lot of times I'll have my birds by then. Okay. Uh, but the really good hunting that we have is on private land, mostly cut cornfields. And dove hunting is for us is very much like goose hunting and we scout we find the birds we get permission and uh have just some tremendous hunts in cut corn this year actually we we shot a alfalfa field on opening morning and uh i think i shot shot my limit about 40 minutes it was spectacular and we shot that field again a few days later and uh and then since then we've been out looking for them i'm probably try it again this afternoon so when scouting for doves, what's the time, what's the cycle, is it, is it, are you looking where they are the, the previous evening and then making a, making an assumption on where they're going to be the next day or how does the scouting, I've never, I've never gone dove hunting, that's probably apparent by this point. <laughs> uh, the easy way to do it, the best way to do it is to go out either in the morning or you know, later in the afternoon and look for doves. They will gather before they go down to feed, they'll gather either on wires or in dead trees and you know, get all get up there together and look down at the field, make sure everything is okay, and then start that. dropping down to feed. And so if you find, we find doves on the wires, uh, my rule of thumb is 10 is an interesting number of doves. 20 will be a huntable number, and over 20, you start calling people up. <laughs> 
I like that. That's that's nice and simple. Um, Ten doves, twenty doves, and it is, and it, it works. It were and doves are really hard to see on the ground, you know, so uh, yeah. finding perched doves is, is really the best the best way to scout for them. Um, now, some it's funny. Some fields are good day after day, and others when we shot one Saturday and uh, shot limits, and then I went back. And it was one of those. I was calling people up. Unfortunately, most people couldn't go because I think we shot two doves. The two of us that did go. Um, so you just have to keep track of them. They move around as as fields open up, as the weather changes. But where most people think of dove hunting is just a very early September thing. We can shoot birds all the way through to the opening pheasant season in late October. Awesome. What's your What's your preferred? Recipe, single recipe, many recipes. Um, How do you like to prepare them? I, I like to stir fry doves because you know, like a duck breast, it's dark meat, and so it's great if you cook it rare, and it's terrible if you overcook it. Yeah. Um, like a so I will. A lot of times, like we, yeah, exactly like that. We had uh, fajitas made with dove breast just the other night that were great. Um, various Chinese stir fries are really good. This time of year, when the doves start to get fat, I will pick the fat ones and I'll just split those and put it, put them under the broiler because I like a whole plucked bird about as much as anything. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, the classic obviously is the popper, yeah. which is you wrap the doves in bacon and put them on a skewer and cook them in the oven. And the that is the one instance where you can cook a dove a long time because the the bacon fat kind of infuses the dove breast and you know, it, to me, it all just winds up tasting like bacon, yeah. which, you know, that, that's fine, but it doesn't really taste like doves. It's still a, it is still a crowd pleaser whenever you do it. Um, right. you feed a bunch of those to people who haven't had doves before, and they'll understand right away. Yeah. Well, I'm getting too hungry now, so we better we better shift gears here, Phil. All right. <laughs> Actually, it was funny you when you when you did mention the that it's hard to see doves on the ground. I that reminded me. I can imagine, um, I don't recall ever really seeing many doves on the ground, not that I pay overly a- attention to them, but I was just out west mm-hmm. hunting on my sharp tail trip, and we, we saw a lot of doves out there this year. It was it was to the point where we kind of were noting, like, wow, there's a lot of doves on the on the fences and on the wires, just like you described, but mm-hmm. the, we had pulled in, we pulled into a wheat stubble field, and just thought we were mm-hmm. pulling in just to park the truck and just thought we were pulling into a an open spot and all of a sudden my buddy looked down and he's oh there's a sharp-tailed grouse we basically right outside the truck we almost saw it and and sure enough over the next really? you know 10 to 15 seconds about another eight or ten sharp tails all stuck their heads up and the point being it's a, just amazing how those birds can disappear in something that looks so barren just a little wheat stubble field a cut wheat stubble and you know sharp tail can disappear and they're they're good at it they're native birds i can only imagine that would be hard to mm-hmm. find doves on the ground it's just it's amazing what those birds do in those open lands. morning doves they like yeah doves like bare ground because they like to be able to see predators coming up on them uh they're, they're so they're more comfortable in really bare dirt which is why the cut cornfields are the best and um it is you can shoot a dove and if you don't mark it down sure. and go right to it you can look for it for a while before you pick it up because they they absolutely disappear on that bare ground uh, they're perfectly yeah. colored for it 
So seeing doves, scouting doves by looking for them on the ground doesn't work very well, but you can see them in the air. Sometimes you just see them flying around a lot too, but, uh, but mostly it's finding perched doves. Yeah. If you out there, I think there's a lot out there. I think their season is a, a fairly brief early season before it starts to get cold, but there are a lot. And I've been told by people that the Dakotas, I've only hunted doves in South Dakota once, um, and that was that was at a pheasant lodge, and we weren't supposed to dove hunt, but I got there and kept seeing doves and started whining. The minute I got there, take me dove hunting, take me dove hunting, and we did. Finally, they broke down, and they, they we had a wonderful dove hunt there. Uh, and that was a case where just we saw birds flying around everywhere. Yeah. And um, was no so yeah it's it is I say I I grew up occasionally making trips to Illinois or Ohio to dove hunt, but now we can do it here 15, 20 minutes from the house, and it's just wonderful. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Well, I'll have to, I'll look forward to the first time I do get to dove. It has been on my mind, and it's, it's, I guess it's a, I always think of it as that early season thing, but it's interesting to hear you talk about uh, there's some opportunities a little later in the season, so one of these days I'll get out there. There are, there can be. They're not as reliable. Really, for us, September is the best time. Sure. But, well, with that in mind, Phil, I would like to—I'd like to learn a little bit more about your background and sort of how you how you got into shotguns and shooting in in this way, and obviously find mm-hmm. yourself as shotgun editor for Field and Stream and Ducks Unlimited now, and you've been a prolific writer. I've I've read many of your articles over the years as I've gotten more interested in this stuff myself. But I'd love to kind of hear where it all began. Where did your love for birds and dogs and guns begin? Well, I grew up around them. Uh, my dad. Hunted for for a short period of time. My hat. My dad hunted intensely. He had a Weimaraner first, which was our first first dog I remember, and that was when I was a toddler. And then uh, he had a couple Springers after that. Uh, and he did quite a bit of you know, did a lot of pheasant duck hunting around here, and then and traveled also. Um, at the time, I wasn't interested in it at all. I just uh, it wasn't really until. It was my senior year of college, and I was home for Christmas break, and I think all my friends had gone back to school, and we were snowed in, and there was nothing to do, and my dad said, you should, you know, you want to go pheasant hunting, and I, and we did, and then we went the next day, we didn't do any good, and then we, uh, he invited one of his friends, who had short hairs, uh, and we had a day in which the three of us, we saw, I saw more birds that day, and we missed more birds that day. All three of us, including, I know my dad wasn't a very good shot. Vern Zock was an extremely good shot, uh, and he, he was missing and missing and missing. And the last, right at the end of the day, uh, the dogs bumped a rooster, and I, it was like a 35-yard crossing shot, and I just crushed it. I don't know how. And uh, like from that moment on, I never wanted to do anything else. That was like that was just it. Yeah. Um and uh and so that was the hunting part started and then writing I just you know, I read outdoor magazines and uh I kept thinking I can do this and I just I had a lot of time on my hands. We were my wife and I were trying to uh be sheep farmers at the time, which didn't go very well. She was in graduate school and I had I had time to write, and I did, and I actually sold the first story I ever wrote to Field and Stream. 
uh, is about snipe hunting, which I used to do a lot of. And um, they paid me $900 in 1985. And I thought that was a tremendous amount of money. Yeah. And then I did the math. Since it took me six six months to write the story, I realized I could make $1,800 a year writing if I if I wrote at that pace. <laughs> but uh, eventually I, sp- I sped up and uh, stayed at it. It was a long time before I made that second sale. And uh, and that wasn't a field and stream. That was to like regional magazines and kind of worked my way up from there. The um, And I didn't start out writing about shotguns. It was not, I just wanted to write about bird hunting and conservation and dogs and things. Um, and the shotguns I kind of fell into. I started, I did a little bit of it. And then uh, my predecessor at Field and Stream, Bob Brister, uh, okay. got fairly ill and they were auditioning people to replace him. And they auditioned people who were a lot more knowledgeable, a lot better at shots and everything else than I was. But I was the one who was the easiest to work with, I think. <clears throat> I, I got my work in on time, and that counts for a lot. And did I did what they told me, and that also counts for a lot. And uh, I wound up with that. <laughs> and people think if you're freelance, if you're a freelancer, you can do whatever you want, and right. you can, but you won't get paid for it. Um, so, uh, and then they made me shotgun columnist. I've been doing regional stuff and some features and radio. For the for field and stream at the time, and it was 2000. I became the shotgun columnist. 2000 and have been ever since. Hmm. I think that's right. Yeah, somebody can check my math on it, and yours. <laughs> it, it is 2023, so I think that's that's a that's an easy one. <laughs> you said so. You said your first article was that was 85. Is that correct? I, yes. Uh, about there, I, I only. Uh, that, I was that about snipe hunting. That's when I was born. So, um, thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> Apologies. And um, yeah, it was it was about snipe hunting, and it was it was one of these things where I read these magazines, and I I didn't realize then that there's actually nothing new in in these. You know, we write the same stuff year after year because the topics ever change. So I was trying to think, you know, what do I know about that nobody else writes about? And, uh, you know, from when I was young, my dad would bring snipe home. So, you know, I, would, I could never be fooled by snipe hunt <clears throat> at summer camp because I knew that snipe was like a daytime thing you did with shotguns. And uh, <clears throat> I used to go at the local reservoir and, and hunt snipe. I did a lot of it and loved it. And I f- figured that that was something that, that I could write about that nobody else covered. And so I did. And... um I sold that story and and it went on from there. That's that's funny. You mentioned the the topics being sort of recycled, which you know it's it's it is a reality of this world. And I wonder if you have a if you have an approach or some kind of a, a thought process as to how to sort of keep reinventing the wheel in a way because it is like that. You know, we sort of live on this annual cycle where we're looking forward to things and things change certain things change and i know you you lean Mm -hmm. into technology and innovation when appropriate but there are you know there are many articles sort of written about the same things over and over again you know the minute i sort of think i think of something maybe on my own or through my own experience you know then i pull out 
New England grouse shooting and read William Harnden Foster writing about it you mm-hmm. know, a hundred years ago or whatever. So it's, it's yeah. not a lot new and that's one of the cool things exactly. about it. But. It is. It, uh, and it's a collaborative process between me and my editors. Yeah. Um, and it's funny you say that because uh, back when Field and Stream was a monthly magazine and I had a another editor and editor I worked really well with, but it was the day I dreaded every year was the uh, the day we came up with the topics for the shotgun columns for the year. Because for him, it always had to be a new hook of some kind. It, you know, it had to be something that was current. And so if I said, well, I want to write about grouse hunting, it'd be like, well, great. What's new about grouse hunting? And then, you know. Uh, and he was also a master of the uncomfortable silence. So that, you know, when, when you're interrogating someone, you just don't say anything and leave your, <clears throat> leave the other person to twist and try to come up with an answer. Yep. And, you know, the results were good, but the experience of doing that was, I say, I dreaded that day. It was horrible. Uh, and, and that was 12 columns back then. And we, we went down to six and then, well, I guess eight and then six and then four. And then now it's just whenever, uh, on the internet. But uh, it is usually a collaborative process. Yeah. And and it worked well also because Mike was not much of a shotgun shooter and I was too close to it. So by the time we collaborated, we'd be kind of in the middle where most readers are. Yeah, that's cool. And that, um, yeah, so that that's kind of the, the process. Um, a little easier now just because I, have, you know, I don't have to do as many and... Uh, but that is that is kind of, and, but and it's nice to find new things that I like. I, uh, especially as I get older, you know, no one wants to listen to the old guy talk about how great things were 30, 40 years ago. Uh, so I'm always glad when I find new technology that I like. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I like I tend to like more traditional shotguns, but something new comes along that I like. It's it makes me happy. It makes my job easier. Yeah, and, and by that, are you referring to? And, and maybe the answer is both, but sort of technology in the field and in the uplands, but also like obviously you've seen an incredible amount of change and innovation. It's just sort of the way your industry works and article publishing and submission and that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, more for me, more it's, it's I'm always excited when there's new new hardware, new ammunition, something like that that yeah, yeah. that I like uh, and that works comes out that that makes my job easy and fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I am stuck in, I kind of think of with shotguns, the shotguns made in the, the 80s and the 90s uh, are kind of like, those are the ones I look for. They have all the modern advancements there. You can shoot steel shot through them. They have choke tubes. Uh, they're, you know, inter- if it's a semi-auto, it's an interchangeable two and three quarter and three inch gun. But at the same time, guns were made to a much higher fit and finish to a much higher standard even just 30 years ago and i really uh i really appreciate that uh but at the same time you know every year that passes that those guns become older and it's always exciting for me to find new technology that i like um try to stay current with these things too yeah well, I, I do want I want to talk guns a little bit, and I want to reference a, a article that I recently read of yours. But before we do, just because I don't know that we'll have time to circle back to this, is there anything in today, twenty twenty three, 
in you know with respect to modern technology and advance anything catch your eye you know this year in particular whether it's ammunition or, or guns or anything like that i know you do kind of the shotgun roundup i think i read that in shooting sports mm-hmm. i do um, what comes to mind that that's new and interesting to you in 2023 well the the three inch 28 gauge which i was ready to hate i shot some patterns with with some one ounce heavy shot loads out of a benelli super black eagle three and uh I would absolutely shoot ducks and geese with those to 35, 40 yards, which really surprised me. Um, I didn't expect that. I'm not sure I would, uh, just because the guns are so small and light. I, I find them hard to shoot. But in terms of the ammunition, they are surprisingly good. Right. Um, and I really did not expect that. Uh I, I, although I shoot a 28 gauge, I am not a, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't believe in the magic of the 28 gauge. I believe it's just a neat little gun. Yep. And I think this is, you know, maybe not necessarily the best use for it. Although I'm, you know, I can say that all I want and people will buy these things because they are fun and they're cute and they're light. <clears throat> right. But, uh, I was very impressed with the performance of the ammunition. I'm going to go actually next time at the range, next couple of days, I'm going to get a chance to shoot some more some more different loads and see what they do. But these were heavy shot fours, which used to be my favorite all around duck and goose load. And, uh, in the, in the 28, they just shot exceptionally well. I was really, really surprised. So somebody's done something right with those. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking uh, of the, the 20, the, the 28 gauge, you and Greg Elliott and Ryan Dowdy over on a break in the action. I think I mentioned this on a recent podcast, but you guys did a, did mm-hmm. a great episode on the 28 gauge, the magic or myth. And I would encourage folks to, to mm-hmm. go listen to that because it was a great discussion on the 28. And I find myself, you know, listeners of this show will know that I've kind of gone into the 28 gauge world and I've been really enjoying it as I am primarily a rough grouse and woodcock hunter. And like you, I think mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, just a neat little gun for, that application and used within its you know perceived limitations uh, it's just an awesome little little gun but to, to argue that there's something magical going on or anything like that is is kind of silly but it's a uh, it was it's a fun conversation so i would encourage yeah. folks to check that out it is uh and that was that was a fun one to do um and i will say that you know there's absolutely nothing square about a three inch one ounce load of heavy right. shot in 28 gauge but it's just <laughs> patterns spectacularly well so uh you know the, the square load thing not sure i believe in that but there's something going on in, in that particular shell in that gun um and i do you know I, I shoot a 28 uh at doves or at least well uh i have a the beer zini over under it's got 30 inch barrels it's under six pounds and i love it um and then I had a bad, and I still love it, but I had a bad day with it oh, a few weeks ago, a uh, day when the doves didn't want to decoy and the wind was blowing and they were flying fast and um, I lost a couple, which doesn't happen very often. And, and it was kind of frustrating. And I put that gun up and I picked up my 12-gauge Silver Pigeon 3 and I'm not sure I'm going back. <laughs> it's uh, you know, I look at a dove with that gun and it falls out of the sky. There's yeah. no, uh, it, it is just so much easier 
to shoot it. And it's not so much that I've got an extra, you know, I've got an ounce versus five eighths of an ounce of shot. That right. that's part of it, but mostly it's just the weight and the heft of that gun make it so much easier to shoot. And that's something that I think not everyone who jumps on the twenty eight gauge bandwagon fully appreciates. They are great guns for carrying. Yes. They are great guns for, for, you know, when a bird pops up in front of you, they're perfect. Uh, when you have to do something a little more with it, they're not as perfect. Yeah, indeed. And that's a great segue because the article that I, that I foreshadow or mentioned was, uh, in the recent issue of the Rough Grouse Society magazine, Covers Magazine, you had written about light 12s, which I had read an, another article of yours about light 12. So I knew that you were a fan of, lightweight 12 gauges and I'm, I'm almost using air quotes mm-hmm. here even though listeners can't see that but i'll just kind of tee you up and talk us through the sure. lightweight 12 gauge what you consider that to be and then we'll we'll get into some of that stuff you know uh, my definition is probably a little a little generous i would say anything under seven pounds is a lightweight 12 gauge um anytime you're, you're you can get a 12 gauge that that weighs the same as a 16 or a 20 it's a light gun uh, and, you know, before we go on, I had a chance to shoot your gun there at, at Horse and Hunt, your 12-gauge, yep. and that was wonderful. I really enjoyed shooting that gun, and and it was pretty clear to me, too, when I would take, you know, if, if, we, if I was shooting your 28, and if there was a target I couldn't hit, I could pick up that 12-gauge and break it. Yeah. Uh, and even so, that's what a six pound, six and a half, six and a quarter pound gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Phil's referencing uh, uh, one of our RFM Venus side by sides, which is a six pound five ounce gun, twenty nine inch barrel, twelve gauge, and then the 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 basically the twin to it is my twenty eight gauge, which is a five pound five ounce gun. So there's a pound difference between those two guns. Yeah, yeah, and then the pound that pound difference makes. All the difference in, uh, in being able to hit a target, I thought, but both of them are great guns. Uh, the 28 would be, that'd be a great gun for what you use it for and, you know, for anything else, you've got that 12 gauge. So that gun would be a really good example of a, like what I, you know, what I would consider a lightweight 12, which is down, down in that six and a quarter pound mark. Uh, easy gun to carry all day. And, uh, still you, you can load it up if you have to. Um, they do. I don't know what your experience with your gun has been, but when you start to get over an ounce and an eighth or so, you can feel those guns go off. Absolutely. There's, uh, yep. <clears throat> you know, I, I spent, um, in fact, I talked about it in that story. I, I spent about half a season hunting with that Beretta Ultra Leggero, uh, which is a gun I like because it does, you know, I was excited to like it because it has new technology that I thought I would hate. Which is, you know, plastic inserts in the, mm-hmm. in the frame. And I loved it. And at, I think that one, I think my gun was six pounds, six ounces that I shot. And it was great to carry, great to shoot, liked everything about it. Um, except, you know, one, once I got over about an ounce and an eighth of shot, uh, it, it was painful to shoot. Um, now on the other hand, I have a, one of the few Ruger gold labels, um, which I think is about a six and a half pound gun. And a lot of that weight is in the barrels. And I have shot, you know, 1400 foot per second, ounce and a quarter loads out of that gun and, and not really noticed it. And I used to hunt pheasants with that gun a lot. And I'm thinking I might start hunting with it again. Um, just cause I, I always liked shooting it. 
But, uh, you know, those would be lightweight 12 gauges. And, you know, that gun is a great example. That gun came out and the public was underwhelmed by it because it wasn't a 20 gauge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, my, to my way of thinking, if it's a, if it's a 12 gauge that weighs about the same as a lot of 20 gauges, it's better. But <laughs> it's, yeah. yep. it's a hard thing to convince people of. Yes. <laughs> and, and that gun also, it's, it's a, it's a true round action. So the, frame is really slim it it feels like a smaller gauge gun and uh you know to me it's it's just really versatile i could i could shoot very light loads at you know if i want to take it woodcock hunting i could shoot heavy loads for pheasants it was easy gun to carry uh and that's you know that's the advantage of it and as as greg has written about several times in shooting sportsman the other thing about Light 12 gauges, they are a deal. Nobody wants them. Yep. Uh, so you can find a really good, if you want to buy a British gun, uh, you can find a 12 gauge for, um, not that much money. A friend of mine bought a, a William Ford at auction at Rock Island. I think he paid about $1,500 for it. Beautiful gun. It's a 12 gauge with 29 inch barrels. Uh, I can't remember how much it weighs, but it's, it's a light one. Uh, and, you know, he was able to get it for really way less than it should be worth, in my opinion, and and he loves it. Uh, yeah. And so there's that advantage to 12 gauges too. I always tell people if they see a if they're in a gun store and they see used 20 on the rack and they like it, they should buy it right away because it won't be there. But if it's a 12 gauge, it probably will be, mm-hmm. and you can probably get a deal on it. So they have they have that advantage as well. Yeah, I was I was talking to a talking to a friend of mine yesterday actually and he had just recently picked up a Frankot 12 gauge and sent me some pictures of it and the mm-hmm. price he paid for it was was as you describe you know less than than what you probably should be paying for that and it was light and it was clean and it was mm-hmm. just a beautiful beautiful gun i i don't own a Frankot. i have a gun that's very much like a Frankot, but i kind of I, I i would like to own a Frankot at some point because i just i love those guns uh-huh yeah, and the other the other light twelve gauge I have is I have a JP Sauer. Okay, yeah, yeah. From about nineteen forty, and I think it's like you know six pounds, like six pounds ten, I think, which is. Yeah. Uh, and I need to have some weight taken out of the stock, and that would <clears throat> because it's a little barrel heavy now, barrel light now. Um, but uh, yeah, and this I should be able to get that gun down under six and a half, and and that gun it's slim enough that. When I went the first time I looked at it at the store, the clerk handed it to me. He thought it was a 16 gauge because it is so slim, uh, and it's not. It's a 12. It's uh, it had 65 millimeter chambers, which since it's a German gun, I could have those lengthened without any any problem at all. Yeah. And uh, again, that's you know, to me that's the best of both. It's light. It's easy to carry. It's in that that weight sweet spot for weight where it's heavy enough to shoot and light enough to carry which i think you know people get carried away with the lightweight part and and don't you know don't always think about the shootability of the gun as well and mm-hmm. and you know, honestly i think a lot of guns are uh, are made lighter just because it's an easy sale when people you so, see someone walk into a gun store and they get the all the guns out and they're looking at them the one they pick up that's light and comes up fast that's the one they buy whether and and oftentimes I think the gun that feels a little awkward in the store is sometimes the easiest gun to shoot in the field or on the range. 
Can we take a break for a second, Nick? I have a dog that wants out. Yep, yep, no problem. I'll be right back. I'll pause it. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. All right, sorry about that. I'm sure I'll have to go back, get him back in in a second, but um, yeah, no dogs are here. that way. Yes, yeah. Did you walk <laughs> yours around the block this morning? He did. He got his walk in. Um, you know, I um, I tend to hunt my dogs into shape rather than rather than get them out a lot in the preseason, um, and that it, it tends to work pretty well with the way I hunt. I because I am work from home i try to try to get some work done and then you know get in a couple three hours of hunting as many days as i can when it's pheasant season and that uh so as a result my dogs aren't going all day every day yeah yep. or aren't you know aren't, aren't going on, on a say on a trip say where they'll have to hunt all day for three four days in a row so yeah, all day every i can take day a kind of a kind casual of approach to to yeah yeah, I can take a casual approach to conditioning, and he's Zeke is four. He'll he'll be fine. Yeah. Um, but uh, so just the walk is enough just to take the edge off and make him sleep around the house all day. Yep, that's uh, uh, I'm I'm on the, uh, the very same uh, same plan or very similar plan, I should say. I I I don't I used to experiment, I guess, because I'm you know relatively you know ten years or so newer to bird dogs, but I. I used to sort of ramp mm-hmm. up before the season, and now I just I I have this baseline level of conditioning that we do, and it's kind of it's just as you describe. You know, we're I'm um, doing some work, and then we'll get out and get our exercise to basically give the dog something mm-hmm. to do mentally and free run and clear out the bodies, and then they sleep right. around the rest of the day, and and then as as hunting season comes, you know, the most mindful I am is when we make our western trip early in the season and then i'm just yeah. i'm just managing the time on the ground and that sort of thing but then as the grouse season sure. here gets gets underway we just kind of we sort of hunt our way into shape uh because it's that's just the arc of mm-hmm. the season for the most part right and uh, do you have the opp- can you hunt right right by your house I, I gotta drive a little ways we live in town here in duluth and so i mm-hmm. i could be hunting probably within 10 minutes if i wanted but i usually go i usually yeah. go further than that just to get into some of the bigger pieces uh-huh. of public. yeah that's that's about what what it is for me i've got some places that are very very close to home and you now the rest are within a half an hour or so so i can i can maintain the schedule of pretending to work and almost getting enough hunting in and, it, and it's um you know i 
friend of mine just retired. He's taking a six-week road trip to Montana. That is the way to do it. And what I do is great, but I found out a long time ago that if I am home and available when work calls, I stay busier. Yeah. So yeah. I squeeze my hunting in as I can. I go a lot, and we have, you know, I probably went 30-some times last year yeah. for pheasants. And uh, but it's never for very long, so that means I can, I can take a casual attitude towards dog conditioning. The dog I had before this one, also short hair, had some kind of skin allergies or sensitive skin or something. Where, if I ran him much before the first frost, he was just a bloody scraped up mess. Mm. At the end, he just, his nose, his eyes, his belly, everything, and I felt bad about it, so I just wouldn't take him uh, and. And I kind of got out of the habit of, also got me out of the habit of doing things I used to really enjoy, like woodcock hunting, which I used to make day trips up to northeast Iowa and, and hunt woodcock up there. Um, but, uh, yeah, for now, I pretty much try to stay busy until pheasant season starts and try to hunt a lot. Yeah. As When's I can. the pheasant opener? It's got to be coming up relatively soon. Ours is the last Saturday in October. Last Saturday in October. Uh, so, okay. actually, and the way the calendar falls is. Yeah, it's, I think it falls on the 28th or 29th this year. Uh, and then it runs until January 10th. Okay. And, uh, well, I, I like it all, but those last 10 days of the season are my, my very favorites. Really? Uh, I always go a lot. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, every once in a while it's too cold or too icy or something to go, but usually it's great. And, um, and either it's cold enough that the birds cooperate and, we have some really good hunts, or sometimes it's warm and frustrating, and they all want to flush wild, and then you're glad the season is over. So <laughs> either way, you know, I, I try to make sure I get out and, and see it out. Yeah. Uh, what are what are conditions typically like? You know, or like what's your like? I is there? Are we talking snow cover? Because um, I would imagine, knowing where you're at, you know, it's you may or may not have snow. I would imagine. Right. We actually don't have nearly as much snow as. As you do up there, or yeah. even people just a little bit north of us. Um, now cold weather is what really, yep. cold weather for the dogs and cold weather to make the birds need to feed. Uh, when it gets to the point where they've been hunted a lot and it's warm and all they really have to do is stay out of our way, <clears throat> that's when it gets hard. Yeah. Um, and snow, too. People love hunting in the snow, and I get that. I, I enjoy it myself sometimes, but there's also comes the time when there's been snow on the ground for a while and the birds gather in groups and you know sit under bushes and things and they can see you coming and you can you can see them and they can see you coming <laughs> and that can be pretty frustrating too uh but unless we have ice which happens every few years uh or it's really really horribly cold you know i, I try to go almost every day at that last from new year's to the end when you say unless cold, I get, unless I get distracted by geese, that happens too. Yeah, yeah. When you say cold, yeah. are we talking thirty-two degrees? Like, what's the daytime high when you say cold? Oh, uh, good question. I mean, I think of cold as like twenties, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, and thirties are thirties. Thirties are fine. Twenties to thirties are like ideal hunting weather. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I would be really. right there with you. And I, I've. I, and I've hunted in, hunted in colder, and uh, always amazes me that German short-haired pointers can run in that stuff, but right. they can, right. as long as they keep moving. But uh, 
and uh, cold weather hunts are good. There's there's a lot of challenges there um, when it gets really really cold, but often the hunting can be very good too. Yeah. Yep, I look, especially right now, we're just, again, it's October 4th. Today we came off a couple days here where we, we, we had 80 degrees on Monday and Tuesday mm-hmm. here, so unseasonably warm. It was near record high. I don't know if we set any records, but um, I, I didn't even, it's October, and I haven't even thought about <laughs> grouse hunting yet, although that's all going to change tonight when the temperature mm-hmm. finally do, does drop. But yes. I look forward to days in the woods where, you know, a daytime high of, of 40 or so in the grouse woods or, you know, maybe mm-hmm. even getting up to 45, that's like, it's, don't get me wrong, it's enjoyable. It's a nice day to be in the woods, but then you get a little little bit warm. But that sort of 35 to 40 degree temperature, I mean, it just feels like yep. the dogs could just walk all day. Yes, I would agree. Um, and it's it's funny that you think of it now, it's how much colder that would feel and... Yeah, can't quite imagine it, but then when it's here, it feels really good. So, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. But currently, I'm currently I'm keeping keeping my head down and working and shooting doves when I can, and then because uh, once pheasant hunting starts, and for whatever reason, that of all the hunting that I do, and you know, it depends really what I like best. It depends what day you ask me. But the the first time I go pheasant hunting every year, I always have. You know, for my entire hunting life, I just, I can't believe we get to do it. It's, it's, (laughs) that's the one where I just, it just amazes me that I can, I get to do this. And uh, so so, for whatever reason, it it remains special to me. Um, Even if I've done a lot of other hunting up until the pheasant opener, that is like, and I don't always go on the opener. For years I didn't, uh, now I can. I used to have a part-time job on weekends, but uh, so whatever day is is my opening day is just uh, I can't believe we get to go. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, let's. I want to steer. We took a little dog break there, but and again, if you got to let the dog in, no, no worries. But I want to steer back to the twelve gauges and the gauge conversation because mm-hmm. this has been something that has. You know, I have, of course, learned a lot about it now working with Upland Gun Company and working with a shotgun manufacturer and and the way we build guns, too, where you can kind of, you don't, like, I feel like a lot of people, and I was one of these people, you kind of start the conversation with gauge. And the more I learn about Mm -hmm. it, I feel like gauge is less and less relevant. And I know you'll have a great understanding of this. Like the more you learn about payloads and what you can do with modern ammunition, Mm -hmm. the, there's just so many other factors that I'm looking at, like uh, a 12 pound or a six, six, six and a quarter pound, 12 gauge. Like, what would we say about that? Carries like a 20 hits like a 12, right? Like there's these old things that, that people say. Absolutely. it's just like there's mm-hmm. so many other things to focus on outside of gauge. There are, uh, and really the, the biggest difference in some ways is just the the heft of the the size of the frame, uh, yeah. and, you know, and the and the grip and the stock and the the forend and just you know it, it's a little hand filling, uh, which I I like. Um, it's a little that is disorienting though with the gun, well like this Beretta I've been shooting last year or like with the uh, uh, Benelli's over under which is which is quite light. They're kind of bulky but light, and it's sort of a strange feeling when you yeah. when you pick up a gun like that. I, I can shoot them okay, but it's still um, it's not that not the feeling like your gun, which is you know 
to me, the classic double gun, like your 12 gauge, it's, it's the platonic ideal. It is everything that's not a gun has been carved away from that gun and just leaving the essence of a gun. And that's it. Right. You know, that, that 12 gauge of yours is it. Uh, and it is, and that's a pretty slim gun too. It's got a very, got a, a small action. Yep. And I don't know what the, I can't remember what the grip, well, you know, the diameter of the grip, but it, it was an easy gun to shoot, hold and carry. And that, uh, so yeah, that is to me the biggest difference among the gauges in some ways is the, just how they feel in your hands and from a, from a thickness standpoint. Um, you can load, there's so much overlapping ammunition if you, especially if you load your own, which I, I don't, or, or, or you can find it, which has been hard lately, yeah. but you can, you could load a 12 gauge down to 28 gauge capacity and it's getting to the point where you can load a 28 gauge up to almost, you know, 12 gauge or certainly a 16 gauge. Yep. So there is a lot of overlap among the gauges. Um, you know, there are marginal ballistic benefits to, to shooting a larger bore. Uh, but really it's, it you know, comes down to what you like. I don't, uh, the only, you know, the only thing that I, I kind of insist on is that, it is easier to shoot a heavier gun, and that's that's the hill I'm dying on, and it's the hill that everybody else is ignoring because <laughs> everyone wants to shoot a light gun, but yeah. but um, a little heft doesn't hurt anything. Yeah. And long barrels, I like long barrels. I've come to like long barrels more and more as I and you know, that your guns both had long barrels. Um, and one of the the one trip I have made this year so far was down to Texas for White Wings, which I had not shot before, and that was a lot of fun. And that was hard shooting. They were high. And anyway, when I was down there, one of the other hunters in camp had a just a beautiful Krigoff. Uh, it was a 28-gauge parkours gun. And I shot that a little bit. And it had it had 38, 30-inch barrels. And yeah. I would have liked it if there were 32 or 33. Sure. Um, <clears throat> would have been just a little bit, little bit more weight out front. Uh, but it's a gorgeous gun. Absolutely perfect. But... But as I, and actually it was, um, the, I remember the first time I ever saw a small gauge gun with long barrels was the first time I met Michael McIntosh, which whom I, whom I met a couple of times. And okay. he had just gotten his CSMC Fox, which was a 20 gauge. I want to say it was a C, a C gray, a CE, but he'd had 30 inch barrels put on that. And at the time it seemed like, uh, I, I couldn't understand it. And then like I picked crazy. it up and I understood yeah. it immediately. Yeah, it seemed crazy, and then I then I handled the gun, and I saw he totally knew what he's talking about. That, in some ways, the the smaller the gauge, the light, longer the barrels should be. Yep. Yeah, that that that's another. And thing you do that. offer that option. Do you have Do you have anybody? Do you have anyone order? I know it's, it's after over thirty inches at at Upland Gun Company. It's a custom order. Do you have anybody order really long barreled small bores? We have done. Um, I know we did a 32 inch barrel 28 gauge. Um, I think we've maybe done a couple of those. I do think the, the fact that, um, it is an increased cost beyond 30. We see a lot of, a lot of 30 inch orders, but far fewer, mm-hmm. um, beyond that. But yeah, and we talked, we talked through that up with people. And again, it's something that I've, <clears throat> I've learned it for myself now. Um, but I, and I know you and I chatted about this, you know, this idea of, like the one place, you know, the grouse woods, you know, you need short barrels and there's kind of, um, some, some stigma attached to that. But I have, you know, I've proven to myself now that that's really, there's no need for that. And it doesn't mean that, that a gun with 26 inch barrels is not a good gun, but it's just 
that I don't need 26 inch barrels to hunt in the grouse woods. And the one thing that I can't wrap my head around yet, and I, if anybody listening has a thing, like I would love to know, like what are the benefits other than this perceived notion of, of we're not getting caught up in the brush with shorter barrels. Like what are the benefits of shorter barrels? I just, I just feel like there's much more to gain with having a little bit longer barrel, especially if we're talking about a lightweight, you know, small gauge gun. Well, I would I would first say that it's hardly ever that last two inches of barrel that gets you in trouble in the grouse woods. Exactly. Usually, it's yeah. you, usually it's much closer to you uh, when the branches and the trees, or or it's you who are in the trees, or whatever. Um, but I think you know there is uh, shorter barrels make for a muzzle light gun, uh, and uh, and a lot of people like that, and a lot of people believe that that shooting fast is important uh and there's certainly people who can do it that i won't argue with i hunted right Mern's quail in arizona a few years ago with a <clears throat> a guide from he's from georgia and he had his father's model 12 and it was the classic southern quail gun it was a 20 gauge model 12 with a 25 inch cylinder bore barrel and he was really really good with it i mean <laughs> he could um he could really shoot that gun and so, you know, there are absolutely have a place and, and, you know, again, the older I get, the, the, le- this is all supposed to be fun. And I try not right. to browbeat people about like what they should be shooting. They can shoot what they want. Um, I, I think it helps to understand what the trade-offs are, but you know, I don't want to shoot a 26. Also, I just think 26 inch barrels look stubby and unattractive. Yeah. So there's that too. But, um, yeah, if you want to shoot it and if you like that, that feeling of speed and and the you know a muzzle light gun is terrific for birds that pop up in front of you. Yeah. If you're hunting uh, you know in heavy cover or whatever, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but I feel like I can still make that shot with a longer barrel gun, and when a different kind of opportunity presents itself, I'm have I'm better equipped to make that shot. Yeah. With yeah. that, that's why I keep with longer barrels. That's coming that, back to is that's yeah, how I look I, at it. Yeah. I would agree, but I, but you're exactly right. You know, it's, this is supposed to be fun and shoot what you want. And, and again, like if you're looking at a vintage gun and it has all of the things that you love and 26 inch barrels and the balance is great and the weight, like there's no reason that that, that that isn't a, a a great gun. It's just, for me, it might be a deal breaker at this point, just because I'm so far the other way. But, Uh um, you know, it's, it's, you're looking at the entire package of the gun and the mm-hmm. other thing, the other thing that you mentioned, and the whole reason I sort of brought up that point about the gauge is, is really to just if if you, if people haven't thought about it, to don't pigeonhole guns based on the gauge, because as you said, like a JP Sauer 12 gauge, you pick that up and think it's a think it's a 16 gauge. You know, the gauge is mm-hmm. just not this. It's a really broad stroke of the brush to describe a gun, and there's so many other things about a gun that that might appeal to you and and knowing how much overlap there is in ammo as you pointed out um you can just do a lot with <clears throat> with different gauges based on what you're ultimately looking for in the gun so it's it's fun you you can and, and i think one of the reasons to choose gauges also is, is from a practical standpoint uh it is a lot easier to find a 7 8 ounce 20 gauge load than it is to find a 7 8 ounce 12 gauge load Indeed. and if that's what yep. you want to shoot and and it costs less too, so, uh, because it's it's not a, a boutique item or whatever. So uh, there's there's no reason you can't start with what loads do I want to shoot, 
and then decide on your what gauge you want based on that. Uh, and if you reload, of course, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. I need to and let the dog in again. He's now he's yipping. Okay. okay. Excuse yeah, me. Go get him. I'll be right back. Okay. Sorry about that. Zeke has he'll stand patiently in the corner of the pen waiting to come in, and then he'll yip really quietly. And then he'll yip a little more, and he never quite gets up to a full bark. But I want to make sure I get him in before he learns that he can stand out there and bark. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wanted to make sure I got up there and, and got him in. So I'm sorry for, for the interruption, but uh, we were talking about I say I say that you know you can always remember if if you want to that the the old W W Greener rule of thumb that a gun should weigh 96 times its payload. Yes. Uh, and you know if you want to get be that way about it and you can you can choose your gun from there from that standard pick and that's that's how people did it you know in the past too they would decide what load they want to shoot what the, what they were going to hunt and they would build a gun around it sometimes yep there's a lot of different ways to approach it and you did mention something that has always stuck with me because a few years ago i went to i went to the federal ammunition factory and we i did an interview there and i remember at mm-hmm. that time because at that time I was really curious about the 28 gauge and I was asking some pointed questions, you know, probably looking for a certain answer. And what the, what the ammunition engineers told me at the time was something that I heard you repeat. So I'm assuming you were there when they originally did this, but essentially as bore size increases, so does pattern efficiency. And that's just a, a fact of how, how the ballistics work. So a 12 gauge is always going to outperform with a given payload, any other, any other gauge. So if you kind of keep that in the back of your mind, like again, that sort of removes the magic and mystery of any, you know, the 16 gauge or the 28 gauge, that kind of thing. If you just know that, but then you know that you're, you can be absolutely capable enough with, with any of these other gauges. It just sort of, uh, it's just kind of like a, it's like my, uh, anchor, I guess. I always come back to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was there when they did that test and they, they let me, uh, you know, a couple of days of access to their test tunnel, and it was a lot of fun. And, and what's fun with those engineers, too, is that it was like a fun day for them because they usually have to work on a specific project, and this was just like, let's see what happens if we do this. And uh, we did, and, and it was surprisingly linear correlation, with 410 at the bottom and the 12-gauge at the top, and then a line you could draw right through the results, uh, angling upward. But at the same time, the ammunition we have now is so good right. that, uh, you know, and I say that in the example that, that 28 gauge three inch load I shot the other day, I was, I was really impressed with it. Uh, it's all good. It's all good enough to kill birds and break targets. Yeah. So another thing I really wanted to ask you about, and it's, and it's along the lines of, you spending some time with federal. I don't know where this study was done, but I believe you were involved with a a little research project that looked into shotgun noise and the noise level of a 12 gauge versus a say a 28 gauge. I don't know many mm-hmm. of the details, but I would love you for you to share a little bit what you recall from that project and sort of what takeaways there were. Uh, that was actually this last summer at the McGraw Wildlife Foundation near Chicago, okay. and. I think the impetus was uh, that there are private clubs that restrict duck clubs that restrict their members to 20 gauge or 28 gauge shotguns on the theory that the quieter reports help them hold birds on the property. Mm. 
And so we had uh, we had everything from 12 to 28, or 10 to 28, I'm sorry, we had a 10 gauge there. Uh, and we had a sound engineer come out and uh, and take readings of all the loads, and I can't remember exactly, um, but and he was he was set up about a hundred yards away from the the guns, uh, but in you know decibels, uh, this is a logarithmic scale, but we can hear a difference of three decibels. Less than that, we can't tell, and I don't know what that is for ducks, but and we found that with a few exceptions, most. 12 gauges and 20 gauges were within that, fell within that three decibel range, that there wasn't really a lot of difference. Okay. With the 28 gauge, it was noticeably quieter. Um, whether that's the same thing, this was before three inch 28 gauges, so whether that's the same with the three inch 28, I don't know. Right. Uh, but, you know, honestly, and, and then we, we did kind of a follow up. Um, the, I, I went with the same. Same people from McGraw out to South Dakota last year, and we were going to do a, a hunt with suppressors, um, which was fun to try. But the day we tried getting sound readings with the suppressors, the wind was blowing like 25, 30 miles yeah. an hour. Yeah. And obviously, if you're downwind of a shotgun, you can hear it. And if you're upwind of a shotgun, you can't. And so, <laughs> you know, my... Yeah. My recommendation for people who have a private club, if they want to keep the ducks on the property, is when the wind, you know, have some blinds you hunt when the wind blows from the north and have some when wind blows from the south and sure. you know, keep the noise out of your refuge area that way rather than by limiting people to smaller guns. Yeah. So, okay, so that's that's fascinating, interesting stuff. It doesn't sound like this was the the point of the study, but... My curiosity is coming from, well, a friend of mine recently, uh, he had been struggling with some some hearing stuff, tinnitus, and um, was having mm-hmm. issues with, with shotgun blasts. So he's gone down this road of um, actually having a suppressed shotgun made, and um, he's made some strides, mm-hmm. but it's become a topic of interest. And I am now shooting uh, the gun that, gun that you shot a little bit this summer, a 30-inch barrel 28-gauge. And I shot that gun mm-hmm. so much last year. By the time I finally got around to pulling out my 12-gauge in December just to say, hey, I, I got this nice 12-gauge, mm-hmm. I want to shoot this too, I shot at one grouse with uh-huh. that gun, and I remember being almost stunned by how loud my 12-gauge sounded after shooting my 28 all season. And so the thing that I'm curious about, and I, you know, we can't answer it here, but I wonder, like, is what is that decibel difference and is there is it significant enough? Like, could a twenty eight gauge be doing less damage to my to my hearing? Obviously, you know, I loved it. I would love to hear that. But um, um, yeah, I, I don't. Audible. Is there any discussion it's, about know, it, that? Is definitely not hearing. No, that was not. I said that wasn't the topic we were exploring. So I can't. But it, it is, and the longer barrels help. Longer barrels move that blast farther away from your ear. Yeah, uh, and that is that is true as well. I have worn. I went on a dove hunt. One of the first. Uh, Duff and I ever went on was a public wildlife area in Illinois, and I shot like five boxes of shells with an old uh, Belgian Auto 5 with a poly, vented poly choke on it, which were really loud because that directed a lot of the blast back. And my ears rang for three days. And ever since then, I have been very careful with my hearing. Uh, now, it's not 
you know, I'm still have experienced hearing loss, but what I notice is a lot of people my age don't hear as well as I do. So it, it's working. And uh, what I wear in the field are those ear valves. Uh, they used to, Lee Sonic used to make them. There's another company that makes them now. I, I was able I to find I believe they're called Shooter's Aid because we did talk about them. Yes, they are. They are Shooter's Aids. And I wear those religiously. I used to even wear them turkey hunting. I gave that up. But, uh, you know, if you go a week without shooting and you're wearing earplugs, it just seems dumb. But right, um, right. But I do wear those all the time, and they work. And I, I feel like I can hear pretty well. I can hear birds. I can hear the wing beats and everything when a bird flushes. But at the same time, my hearing's not getting any better, but it's not getting worse as fast as a lot of other people's hearing is yep. getting. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug those. They're like $10. Yeah. Uh, buy a bunch. And, um, and the other thing that really come in handy in a duck blind when somebody sets off a gun next to your ear. Yeah, uh, you know which, which does happen, and uh, you know it's the difference between <sighs> falling down in pain and just saying mildly, "Don't do that again." To someone. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> it doesn't. It really helps a lot, yeah. and and they've got a little valve, which uh, some studies say the little valves don't work, but it basically shuts when the mechanically when the impulse comes yeah. into the earplug and closes it, and say I. Whether they work or not, they work for me, and I've worn them forever and am doing pretty well. Um, so I would recommend those. The, the electronic hearing protection also works. I don't like it. I just, it's one more thing with batteries, and yep. there's wind noise. Some of the new ones are, are much better with wind noise and are really pretty nice to wear, but, and I have a pair, but I never wear them. Uh, I, I wear the, the ear valves instead. It's just what I'm used to and what I like. Yeah, there are there are some there are some good options out there, and I've got a few of them. And I and I've talked about this before on the show too. I mean, if I was doing anything like dove hunting or waterfowl hunting or anything, I would have no issues wearing mm. um, either the Shooter's Aid or my electronic stuff. It's just the, the the hurdle I can't get over in the grouse woods with the brush and the cover and the noise. And I I'll admit I haven't given them a real good effort but i just it's just a it's a big mental hurdle for me to to accept that as my reality in the grouse woods i just like having no hearing protection so for now i'm shooting a 30 inch mm-hmm. well, 28 um, gauge and doing seeing what that does for me <laughs> yeah and with your friend in the and the, the suppressed shotgun what mm-hmm. makes the biggest difference there is you have to shoot subsonic ammunition as well right yeah then it sounds like a 22 yeah and and that really does work um, and subsonic ammunition is not, you know, you can, you can take birds and break targets with subsonic ammunition. Yeah. Um, but if you're shooting regular loads through a suppressed gun, you're not getting a lot of benefit. Yeah. But no, it's, it's a, it's a topic that it, it matters a lot to me because I, you know, I went and I had a, had a test with an audiologist after that, not long after that hunt and they. They showed me the hearing loss, and they said, yeah, that's absolutely, that was your dove hunt Um, right there. And so since then, I've been pretty careful. And that was, you know, I was 40 years ago. And and, and when I go to the range, it's always earmuffs, electronic earmuffs over earplugs. And a lot of people don't like to wear earmuffs when they shoot a shotgun. I don't 
it's never bothered me and um i really like having that double protection so yeah i'm i'm a i'm a hearing safety nerd <laughs> well that's in, good in, in the field and on the range for sure and yeah it is it's it's the way to be all right, Phil. Well, last thing I wanted to ask you about was, you know, you having been a guy that has, you have shot many, many shotguns for work and just your personal mm-hmm. interest and you've done lots of things. And I, I believe when you came to see us in June earlier this year to do a gun fitting with Del Whitman, former guest of the show, I believe that was your first mm-hmm. actual gun fitting. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong there, but talk just tell me a little bit about your experience, some of your takeaways, and what you what you got out of that experience shooting. It, it was actually my second my second okay. gun fitting. I had a gun fitted oh fifteen years ago, uh, and uh, you know it, it is. What's interesting is that two different fitters can give you two different stock dimensions, and yes. both work. Um, it, it is you know it's not an exact science; it's an art. And and there's more than one way to to make a gun fit. So I had that <clears throat> that takeaway. The the fitting with Dell was interesting. Um, well, I, I like Dell because he'll explain everything. Yep. Um, and some people like that. Some people don't. I love that. Uh, one of the things he did with me because I shoot so many different guns is you know he knew that I could have learned to accommodate a lot of different stock dimensions uh, just because I've shot so many guns. I don't shoot any gun great, but I shoot a lot of guns okay. And uh, so rather than look at the plate, he had me, and which would then lead me to sort of correct my mount almost subconsciously as I brought the gun up. He had me look at a, a spot on the ground halfway between the plate and where we were standing so that I didn't have any you know, point of aim, so that I was just, simply mounting the gun and we did that and he dialed me in pretty quickly uh you know what was also interesting i'm left-handed but he almost gave me right-handed cast on that gun both because my face is pretty thin and because i've shot so many right-handed guns i'm just used to turning my head into the stock and then he backed away from that he thought that was too that was insane. We weren't, we weren't getting a right-handed <laughs> gun, he decided, but we came close. Uh, so that was, um, yeah, no, it was a very interesting process. And he did a, when I did it before, uh, we started in, a, in the Briley showroom in Houston with a tri-gun and then, you know, fiddled with that forever and then actually went out and shot targets, steel plates and targets the next day and just kept tweaking the gun until it was perfect. So that was like a two-day process. Uh, I'm not sure we wound up with anything uh, more than what, you know, better than what Dell did because I think I think he's got me on target with that, those yeah. dimensions. But there's, you know, there's a couple different ways to do it. And the funny thing too about my, my fitting down there, my first fitting was fitter looked at me, kind of sized me up for a second and said, oh, you'll take, you know, Standard dimensions, a little bit of cast on. And two days later, that's what we wound up with. You know, <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that Dell said that I really liked and, and actually appreciated uh, because I just made this mistake, he said, one of the things, one of the most important things a gun fitting gets you is it saves you money from not buying guns that don't fit. Yeah. Uh, and we had that talk about, you no. Know, Seven, eight months too late because 
<laughs> when I first got interested in shotguns, I wanted a Browning Satori target gun. For for whatever reason, those those big those four ends that look like they're like sawed off two by four that they used <laughs> to put on the trap and skeet guns. I just thought that was the coolest thing. And it's just it's and I walked into a gun store last summer and they there was just a pristine twelve gauge Satori skeet gun and I had to have it because that was it. That was like my rosebud gun. You know, and uh, Yeah. And I bought it and as long as I shot it pre mounted, I could shoot it okay. And if I tried to shoot it low gun or off the shoulder a little bit, I couldn't hit a thing with it. And I sold it. I kept it for about two months and got rid of it. Uh, and this is, you know, the gun that I wanted my, my entire adult life. Um, so yes, had Dell and I had the fitting before I saw that gun, I might not have bought it. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that was, um, that's worth the price of the fitting. It was worth two or three times the price of the fitting right there, making right. that mistake. Yeah. Well, I definitely appreciate that. It's one of the reasons we love we love Dell, and um, I I share a lot of similar thoughts. You know, having gone through a couple of gun fittings myself, um, yeah, there, there's a bit of an art to it as much as there is a science. And but again, Dell's kind of walking you through and explaining why he's doing certain things, and that just it's a it's a great uh, great experience. So um, it, it is. Fun, it's fun it's a really fun part of the whole. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to seeing the gun that that results from it. Indeed, indeed. We'll probably have you back on to to talk about that if you've had a chance to play around with it a bit. I was. We are going to wrap this up, but I I had something jotted down. I have to ask you this: Do sure. you know anything okay. about Winchester Model Twenty Threes Pigeon Grade? Uh, that's another gun I've always wanted. Hmm. Um, I just again, it was just when I first started getting interested in guns, those were like cool guns um so i know i did i did have a chance to buy one once and decided that the the wood to metal fit bugged me or something about it so i did not you know. but uh why do you ask well the the reason i ask is because uh i feel feel honored and very fortunate to say that uh, a, a hunting mentor of mine somebody that took me on we actually never grouse hunted together but I, he lived up the street from me when I was a kid, and I would always see him walking down the street with his mm-hmm. with his bird dogs, German short hair, and kind of had uh-huh. visions. And he did take me on some of my first deer hunts ever. And he is uh-huh. unfortunately his grouse hunting days are over. And just a couple of weeks ago, he, we reconnected, and I stopped by, and he gifted me his grouse gun, a model twenty three. Mm-hmm pigeon grade 20 gauge really? side by side so yeah i now i now own one oh and, my goodness uh, i didn't know much about them prior to that that's great yeah the, um good guns they're they're good guns they is yours the the, the 20 gauge straight gripped gun it actually it has the prince of wales round knob round knob grip mm-hmm. yeah. yeah a lot of them did yeah um those, those are well-made guns they came from that uh Cadencia factory in Japan. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, really, really, you're lucky to have that. And I bet if he's hunted with it a lot, it's all scratched up already, so you don't have to worry about that. There's when nothing you take it to into worry the woods. about. <laughs> yep, yep, nothing to worry about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, neither. That's to great. Say. That's, that yeah. is, um, you know, I had a, I was very lucky to have a similar 
experience. Um, a couple of years ago at, at Christmas, um, <clears throat> my mom had a 20 gauge superposed when I was growing up. A skeet gun. She did all her hunting with it. I was not, as I mentioned, I wasn't interested in, in hunting and shooting until my early 20s. And so she eventually sold it for a saddle, traded it for a saddle. Um, <clears throat> and I, and I always, Maybe said too much about that when I started getting interested in guns. Anyway, I've always wanted one. And, uh, and my mom always felt bad about it. Anyway, but we had some family friends who had us over, me and my wife over for New Year's dinner. And this Rudy had hunted with my dad. In fact, bought his first dog from my dad. And, uh, we get to the end of dinner and it, the dinner was great. His wife was Italian. He's a great, great cook. And, we had the after dinner <clears throat> for Nat and everything, and we're sitting there unable to move. And Rudy said, Did you ever see that movie, A Christmas Story? Mm. I said, Yes. He said, Take a look behind that chair there behind you. And I looked back there, and there was this cheap vinyl gun case behind the chair. And I know actually that Rudy has his. Uh, his Red Rider because I've yeah. seen it. He, and so I thought, well, geez, Rudy's got, he's giving me his Red Rider. That's, that's odd. That's nice, but kind of odd. <laughs> and I opened up the case and there was a 20 gauge superposed just like my mom's in it. Oh my gosh. Um, I know he'd had it. He'd bought it from a, a med school doctor. He'd bought it from a medical student, you know, in the seventies and never shot it. And, uh, my gosh. You know, my wife is not a gun person. There were tears streaming down her cheeks. It was, you know, it was um, and I take that gun out a couple times a year and, and hunt with it. So um, I know how much a gun like that must mean to you, too. That's great yeah. that you have it. I hope you put it to good use. Yes, absolutely. The The Model 23 will be getting some woods time this fall, and I, I really hope, well, either way, I'll be sending some pictures to, to my buddy Jim. So, yeah, absolutely. Very well, good. Phil, before we get disconnected again, we will wrap this up. I can't thank you enough. This has been a blast. Like okay. I said, I enjoyed connecting with you in, in June, and, and we'll, we'll keep in touch as, as we continue our little shotgun project, and we'll probably update the listeners here. We have much more we could talk about. If folks are interested in checking out some of your articles, is there a, is there a hub or an HQ that you would point them to? Fieldandstream.com, obviously. You know, fieldandstream.com, uh, probably on the Ducks Unlimited. I'm in the Ducks Unlimited magazine. They still have an actual magazine. Uh, I'm in there. I have the shotgun column in there every <clears throat> six times a year. So, yeah, and then searching my name will bring up a lot of stuff, too. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I did mention it earlier, but folks listening, uh, the latest issue of Covers Magazine, Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society Magazine, go read about lightweight 12 gauges and uh, and head on down the rabbit hole from there. there. But. Phil, thank you once again sure. for joining us on this episode of the Absolutely. podcast. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast.
Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.